Welcome to the Rusted Garden Homestead Podcast. My name is Gary Polarczyk and I am the content creator for the Rusted Garden. This podcast is all about vegetable gardening, growing, tending, harvesting, cooking, and sharing it all with family and friends. I'll have guest co-hosts, I'll do listener Q&A, and generally ramble on about growing food in any size, space, and place. Start small, learn, and expand when you are able. Today we're going to be talking about small-scale farming or market gardening. My guest is Erica Cody, and she will be talking about her experience growing and selling crops. Welcome, Erica. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. I met Erica at Freetown Farm maybe two years ago, something like that. And now you're a board member with Community Ecology Institute, so I appreciate you doing that. I think the best place to get started is, what do you call this? It used to be small-scale farming. Now, the more the, I guess the phrase is... Um, market gardening how would you describe it so i still use the word the term market gardening or market farming and really what that means to me is growing and selling directly to farmers markets direct to consumer having a really you know deep connection and relationship to those you're selling to and you started how long ago so I have been farming for almost nine years. Um, so I got my start as an apprentice on a farm and worked my way up to running and starting my own farm operation. So the market garden, would you say it's something anybody can do? I think so. If you have the drive and the passion and interest in, in producing vegetables or fruits or herbs for your community, then I absolutely think that it's accessible to anyone. Well, let's get started with, I think, probably the biggest question people have is how much space do they need? Because I know a lot of gardeners um, are passionate as you are, as I am. They want to grow. A lot of people are learning, but they're also thinking, you know, I want a different lifestyle. Like I'd want to make a living off of this or how can I supplement my income? Um, How much space do they need? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. And I always say to people to start small, smaller than you, you know, originally envisioned because what you want to do is really um, maximize. And, and as you're, especially if you're new to farming, it's a space where you can kind of explore without becoming overwhelmed. You know, a lot of people, they might want to start it as a side, side job or a hobby. And I think it's really important to, you know, start in a space that is manageable and, um, that you can really, um, get good production from, um, in a small scale. What would you, so like my, when we were talking last night, and I, I don't even know the size of my garden, but I think maybe it's, I don't know, 6,400 square feet if I include everything. <laughs> what does that translate out to? Is that a tenth of an acre or a fraction of an acre? Like, if you were going to give them an idea, how much actually gardening room do you think they need? Yeah, so um, an acre is around 43,000 square feet. Okay. So um, I would, honestly, you can start with a tenth of an acre um, or a few beds of production and just, you know, see where it takes you. You know, I would start with easier crops and, and you know, get to know the land and slowly build from there. Uh, but a tenth of an acre is a, a great space to, you know, make, make a side income, you know, depending on how much time you have to put in, uh, you could really produce a lot from a, from a small space like that. One of the things I talk to people about is not to get paralyzed thinking they need to know everything, you know. So I try and get people to hopefully watch my videos, <laughs> learn a little bit, check some stuff out on the Internet, um, but get started growing. Did you know everything when you got started or did you just roll into it and say, I'm going to do this? 
I did not know everything. And honestly, one thing that I love about farming and growing is that I feel like you can be a lifelong student. There's, you know, always new problems and challenges and it's endless amounts of ways to learn to grow. So that's one thing I love about it. Um, honestly, I felt like I learned by doing. That's really what, you know, I started as an apprentice and, you know, when I, when I started my own business, it, I honestly, every day was something new and some kind of new challenge or new pest or disease that I had to kind of figure out as you go. So yeah, I don't think you need to know everything, but, you know, having a basic foundation by watching videos like yours, um, you know, reading books, uh, you know, finding mentors, talking to other farmers is a great start and you can get started today. How friendly are farmers to help? I think they're some of the most generous people I've ever met. You know, farmers, from my experience, want to share their knowledge. You know, there's so much passion behind people who are in this space that I think they want to carry carry it on. And they, you know, people that I've met and talked to that have been farming for 20 years, they, they are excited that young people or beginning farmers are getting into it. And I think more times than not, they want to to help and support you through that. Now, I think that's interesting with the sense that, you know, people have been gardening, I don't know, probably for a thousand years, but definitely for three, four hundred years. And everybody had to do it. And then it kind of didn't really go out of fashion, but the grocery store and, you know, Wonder Bread all became this fad. And I think we slowly lost the skills to be able to grow food and it is coming back and younger people are wanting to get involved and change their diet. Um, so it's very nice to hear. And I know farmers, if they're like gardeners, you might ask them a question that only needs to be answered in 30 seconds, but they might take 20 or 30 minutes and you're going to get the stories and the backgrounds and all kinds of stuff. So I think it's, it, it really is a great group of people. So you don't need a ton of space. You can grow into the space that you want. Um, you should have some sense of, you know, how to grow things, but you don't need to know everything. And I want to encourage people to start thinking about if they want to sell, how you know would they do it? People are going to wonder, what are the best things to grow? Because you can't grow everything. And some stuff is really time consuming. And it may only weigh like an ounce <laughs> after you <laughs> grow it all. What do you suggest people think about for growing? So I think there's a lot of different avenues you could go when exploring that question. Um, you know, you could look at things that are a little less maintenance, depending, like, let's say you work full time and you want to grow products that, you know, have less demand. Um, so you could look at things like root vegetables. You know, I love growing lettuce because it almost has no pest or disease issues. You know, there's mm -hmm. challenges when growing it during the, the summer and, and hot months, but you could grow, uh, you know, greens, things that are quick to mature. Um, so beets and radishes, uh, microgreens are kind of a fun way to start. And it's the, the challenge with microgreens is it would take a little bit of um, educating the consumer base because not everybody is familiar with them. So that could be a little bit challenging. But I would I would definitely recommend starting with crops that you know are quick to mature or you know don't require a ton of um, like labor. Labor into it. Mm -hmm. And quick to mature, you're thinking like 70 days or less versus crops that take 90 or 100 or you're thinking 45 days or maybe a mix of, of both of them or all of them. Yeah. I mean, when I say quick to mature, I'm thinking, you know, 
as, as little as 25 days okay. up till, you know, 50, 60, 70, if you're looking at like the greens, kale, chard, things like that. So we're really talking about spring, summer, fall, cool crops, warm crops, cool crops. And for people that don't know, a 28-day, 35-day crop is usually like arugula, um, radishes. I know people love radishes. There's nothing like a cool, weather-grown radish. It's not spicy. It's sweet. It's crisp. It's crunchy. Um, and I would imagine people love seeing the colors for them. So you do want to have a strategy with what you might plant in succession because you can keep doing radishes while maybe you're waiting for a crop that takes 50 or 60 days to mature. This way you always have something for market, I would suppose. Yes, that was a big piece of, of market farming. Because you're on a small space, uh, you want to continuously be you know, flipping beds, rotating crops. You, know, you always kind of want to have a crop growing in, in, in each bed. And you want to think about um, succession for sure. That's how you would ensure you know, constant cash flow when you're either attending a market or if you're supporting a CSA, you want to make sure that you continuously have crops to harvest. So, you know, one thing I always do in the beginning of the season is just have a calendar and block out, okay, every two weeks I'm going to seed radishes, every week I'm going to seed lettuce, you know, depending on what crops I want to sell at the market. It's really important to have a solid plan and consistently be seeding on a schedule. So, and then I would, you know, and I love talking to you because I don't know anything about this. And this is something that I'd like to get into at some point. So it is key then from, you know, just kind of repeating about what you said is you want to sit down before you start and say my growing season, for instance, is April, May, June. And you want to write down what you're planning, when it's going in the ground. And you really do need more of a plan. Unlike what I do is I just kind of, you know, plant with what I feel like planting. But if you don't, then you end up with several weeks of nothing to sell. So if you're doing this, you know, for a side income, that's one thing. But if you you want to grow into something that you can kind of sustain yourself, you really have to make sure the produce is there. Absolutely. And, and making a plan, you know, it's you always have this perfect plan in the beginning of the year and it doesn't always turn out exactly how you envision it. But being prepared enough to just know that you have, you know, constant seed supply, you're constantly seeding um, in the greenhouse or direct sowing uh, to know that you have that consistent production, especially when you're looking at a CSA. You want to make sure you have consistent production every week so that you can fulfill uh, the share. The farmer's market is a little more forgiving uh, because you can kind of show up with what you have. But one thing I, f I found with you know market farming is people get to know your products and they want that product every week. And so it's important to look at it as a, a business and you know having that product each week will that that person will continue to come back to you. Right. And one of the things I talk about is I think organic gardening is wonderful when it doesn't get crazy with all these stamps and certifications and stuff that we could talk about in another podcast. But I always say, know who your gardener is or who, you, who your farmer is. So if you are at the market, and so let, before I go on with that, what would you describe a market as and a CSAS for people that don't know? Yeah, so a farmer's market is typically held once a week, um, different days. Typically, it's on the weekends, and it's usually a four- or five-hour market where artisans and farmers in the area come together and sell. It's you know typically outside with tents. Um, people you know come to hang out. Um, usually, there's music or something. It's it's kind of a gathering spot. Um, you get 
more times than not, you'll get kind of people passing by. You know, some people do their serious shopping there, but it's it's a little bit lighter of shoppers because they're coming to support all the vendors versus just you. A CSA is a great model because it's something, it's like a subscription program. So in the beginning of the season, before you get started and have to spend money on seeds and compost, you actually have the income come in. People pay for, you know, 20 week program or however long you want to commit to. They pay up front and then in return each week during the growing season, they get a share. So it's kind of a risk share with, with the, the customer and the farmer, but it's also a way for the customer to really kind of have a more depth uh, relationship, a deeper relationship with the grower themselves. And we'll talk more about the market and the CSA at the second part of the podcast, but that's the whole thing. I recommend people get to know your farmer, get to know who's selling the food, talk to them and learn. You don't need to look for a certified stamp on everybody's forehead. But know what they're, you know, ask them what they're using and what, what what they're doing in their gardens and what kind of crops they have. I think it's the best way to know where your food comes from and you know trust the food that you're getting. Absolutely. Most profitable. That'll be the next thing. Somebody's going to want to make a million dollars. It's probably possible, but you probably need a lot. <laughs> what are some of the most profitable crops? Or flip it over. What crops? Maybe you're specializing. Yeah, it's great to grow, but maybe not so profitable. Maybe you want to skip it. Yeah, so most profitable crops, I think, for this scale, when we're talking market farming, are the the quicker crops. Um, the, the baby greens, the microgreens, the radishes, beets, carrots, things like that. Um, those are things that people like to, to buy every week as well. So it kind of builds this relationship with, with you know, consistent customers. Uh, things to skip. So I always looked at what takes up the most space again, cause I was on a limited, you know, I had three acres, but it was one acre of production. So I had to choose wisely and choose things that had a quicker, um, they had a quicker day to maturity so that I could fill that bed with another crop. So things I would skip are things that consume a lot of space, like melons, corn, um, you know, things that have high pest and disease pressure. Um, there are kind of row crops, things like winter squash. You know, I, I love winter squash. That's one of my you know, favorite vegetables mm-hmm. or butternuts and acorn squash. But for my scale, it didn't work because um, it just took too long and the price wasn't high enough uh, when I'm selling the squash. You know, it goes for 2 or $3 a pound. Whereas, you know, I could sell a box of greens for five or six dollars and I could, con- you know, consistently have that throughout the year. One of the things, um, you know, and we kind of mold over questions and things to talk about last night was you told me that you, and this isn't really for the market. Well, maybe it is for the market garden, too, but just for gardeners in general, you've been able to grow lettuce deep into the summer heat. How did you do that? Because that's something I want to do and other people want to do. Because for people that don't know, that they love the cool weather. And as soon as the roots get warm, the temperatures get warm, they get bitter, they bolt. What are the tricks that you use to really keep the crop growing through summer? So Ray Tyler from Rose Creek Farm is an expert on this topic. And he has lots of master classes and YouTube videos. And, and he honestly was the inspiration. He's, his farm is in Tennessee. And he has completely mastered how to grow lettuce year-round in that climate, which is even hotter and more intense uh, 
in the summertime than it is here in Maryland. So he was kind of the my mentor in that space. And so the technique really is, um, I could go into lots of detail, but basically you want to use a system with shade cloth on your lettuces and a, a timer system for sprinklers. So having little wobblers go off, you know, three times a day during the heat of the summer to cool the lettuce off. And then using a row cover for the first couple weeks um, while it's getting established. But it's amazing what a little bit of technique and, you know, investment and a little bit of, you know, supplies can do to then allow you to have crops that other farmers aren't growing. So what happened was, uh, you know, I was known for lettuce year round and people would come to me in the summer and I had no competition because no one else was doing it. So it's a really great way to set yourself apart um, and and grow a crop that that other people aren't able to grow or don't want to invest the time in learning how to grow. Did you start out saying, I'm going to do this with lettuce, or did you kind of figure it out as you were doing your market garden? That was something I figured out. You know, I it's trial by error a lot of times. You know, I had a lot of failed crops in the summer trying to do things that weren't possible. But when I stumbled upon what Ray Tyler was doing, it really changed the system for me. So it was something that, you know, again, lettuce and baby greens were big staple products at my farm. So that was something that I set out to, to master and, you know, that it could be different for you. You know, if you are in a market and you find your niche is is something different, you know, I would, I would suggest to people, they go to their local farmer's markets and do research and see like, what aren't people doing or what aren't they doing well? And then find that and, and go with that. That could be a really good way to kind of develop your own niche within your marketplace. And I think that goes with what you said earlier. Start small because you don't know what you don't know. You have to kind of learn as you go. But don't start so big that it's overwhelming because after year one, you might be like, I'm never going to grow this again. This is what I want to grow. And then you sort of begin to specialize like you're describing. Um, and it pays off with respect to you're doing what you love to do, but you're also able to sell it at the market, which I think is a perfect combination. October. I just want to go over with listeners what they can plant. We're in Maryland. Um, we're in the cool weather, maybe, because this week it was like 82 degrees, so it's not quite cool weather yet. But next week, the nights are going to get into the 40s, and we're really out of growing warm crops. Like, So I recommend if people have the warm crops now in October – Time to pull them out. They're just not going to mature. So generally speaking, this is a great time to get garlic in the ground. If you want to put in onion seeds or if you want to grow some onion transplants, you can get them into the ground. You can grow them. You can get them established. You're really getting the garlic established, the onions established. So next year when it warms up in spring, they're going to take off. The other crops that I like are radishes because they are short day crops like you were to, or short to harvest crops. 25 days to 30 days. With the warmth of the day, they still germinate so quickly, like in three days, you can get, I don't know, probably three or four more rounds of radishes put into the ground. Spinach, lettuces do pretty well, pak choy, bok choy. Anything else you recommend that really can take these cold nights that are coming here in Maryland? Leeks is something, you know, alliums are great because they can overwinter and then come spring you have, you know, these crops that are a little bit earlier and more mature. Um, carrots, I'm not sure if it, it might be a little too late for carrots, but I, I really enjoy, you know, the, the cold winter, like a winter carrot after it goes through a frost, it's so sweet. And that's something like if it doesn't completely mature in time to harvest, throw some row cover on it, 
you can come back to it in the in the spring and it'll be absolutely delicious and sweet. That's absolutely true for the um, carrots. And a 10, I find they do better for me in my garden summer, early fall to late fall, early winter because they germinate much more quickly. In the spring, things are kind of backwards. The ground is cold. Things are slower to germinate. What we get benefit-wise now is things still want to germinate because the days are nice and warm. And I forgot about leeks. I would definitely throw that into the garlic, into the onions, um, because they will overwinter nicely, and then they're going to start doing what they do in the spring, and you'll have leeks. And leeks, onions, garlic, even if it's a fail, you still get all this great green growth that you can Mm -hmm. use in soups and other things. Let's go over three listener questions. The first one, will a low tunnel or wrapping my tomatoes help my warm crops? And that's a good question, and it can, depending, you know, what part of the season it is. But now that it's later fall, the 40-degree temperatures are coming, it's not going to do a whole lot. Like, the warm crops are really sensitive to frost and cold. And it might look nice, and you might have this great faith that it's going to help. But it's really time, especially in October, to start pulling out all the warm crops. They're just not going to mature. Take your green tomatoes, um, make fried green tomatoes or something like that. The low tunnels just aren't good enough at keeping the heat in at night to keep that soil temperature at 60 degrees um, and really allow that tomato plant to thrive or your other crops. And it's very similar to the second question, which I will give to you. Can I grow warm crops in my greenhouse? So no. Uh, Once the season kind of dwindles down and the the daylight's shorter and it's it's not warm at night, uh, you won't have, you know, good production enough to keep to make it worth keeping your warm season crops going. You get beautiful green growth. Like my tomatoes right now and peppers, they look wonderful leaf-wise. And you can maintain that. But the warm crops really need, as you're saying, the warmth. And third question, what's the best way to keep my greenhouse warm? You have to use a heater. A lot of people um, have small greenhouses like I do. Um, There's no way for a greenhouse to stay warm at night unless there's a heat source. You can do things like, you know, if you have a big greenhouse, you can put in a gallon or what is it? Uh, Hopefully the cut worked here. (laughs) I messed it up. You can put in a big oil drum filled with water. That will hold heat, but it's going to keep the greenhouse above freezing. It's not going to raise the temperatures up into the 60s or 70s, where a lot of the warm crops have to be to really grow and thrive. Um, If not, you end up with, you know, a lot of leaf growth and and not a lot of production. So you really, if you want heat or you want to grow something that needs heat, you're going to have to get a heater. And the best heater could be a small heater with a thermostat, kicks on it 40 or 50 degrees, depending on what you're growing. Um, But I don't want people to be disappointed that they get all this stuff started, the first freeze comes, kills everything in their greenhouse, and they're done. You absolutely do need a heater. You can find me on Instagram under The Rusted Garden. You can find me on YouTube under The Rusted Garden. I also have a seed and garden shop at therustedgarden.com. And I will put our information in the video description. And if people are interested in um, maybe getting some help with market gardening, how can they reach you? So you can reach me at my email, which is marketfarmher at proton.me. Okay, and I'll put that in the video description too. So part two... I wanted to give people, and I think we could talk about this for hours and probably do like six parts, going down to like a planting schedule and picking five crops and doing all that, which I think would be kind of fun. But so then second half, I want to talk about ways to sell the produce. We talked about 
the market, the CSA, but if you could go into a little bit more about the actual selling and maybe the setup or the time required, I think that would be helpful for people too. I would recommend if you are a new grower, you're you know just getting your feet wet in, in farming and producing, I would say start with a farmer's market. Uh, the reason being is you don't have to bring the same crops every week. You know, no one's depending on the same thing, you know, all the time. So it's a really great way to, you know, get out there, you know, give it a try, meet people in the community, get really good feedback, all while you're able to kind of practice and learn your land and learn, you know, what is your specialty. So it's a really just a, a great opportunity to give it a try and see, you know, see how it goes. Um, so it's less pressure. Less pressure. And they can get started. And even if you can't make it that weekend or something because your crops didn't turn out, you can kind of manage. And you can network. You can learn everything that you're talking about. For the market, how would people find out how to get a space? Like, what would you recommend to help them out to get started? So research your area, what farmer's markets are in your area. And then start contacting, you know, market managers, you know, do a little bit of research and see what other farms are there. See if maybe there is um, a, a farmer's market that doesn't have a lot of farms or, you know, find out which ones are well attended and try to get a space in there. Sometimes you have to start with like a Wednesday market, you know, because it's less desirable than a weekend market. But it's just a great way to start building your brand, um, getting to know people. And that, you know, a lot of my CSA customers, you know, they came from market customers. So it's it's a great way to just kind of get started. Now, the one of the things we're in Maryland Every state, I just want to be clear, is that you need to check with your local government what you need licensing-wise or whatever. Do you need anything in Maryland to sell vegetables? So I'm, I, there's no requirement for right. selling, um, but I, you know, I would get insurance for liability in case there's ever any issue. It's just good to have insurance when you're selling a product in general that people are consuming. Um, and then, you know, there are, you know, different regulations with, with health and safety. So depending on, again, research what your local county is requiring, because different counties require things, you know, different things. So for example, like if I wanted to give samples, you know, I would need a license for that. So I could, I can't cut up my produce and, and share it without having a license for that. So really understanding like what is required as far as, you know, harvesting raw produce, you know, harvesting you know, a squash or something like that. That's not considered a processed product in my region, in my county. So uh, it wasn't something that I needed to get any licensing for. So, and I think that's really important because find out county-wise, um, locally, what you need to do. So I just want to be clear. So if I grow a pepper, I pick the pepper, I put the pepper in a peck or whatever, <laughs> whatever that is, and I can sell the pepper that way. But if I take the pepper, I chop it up in front of somebody and I say, taste this, I would need some sort of yes. clearance for that. In this, in, in, in this county, yes, because basically any, it's considered processing because you're right. using a knife and that is one more, you know, risk of contamination. So if that knife was dirty or, you know, whatever it is, someone's consuming this raw product, you could sell them a pepper and they could go and, you know, munch on it and eat it right at the market. But for you to cut it up and give it as a sample or sell it cut up, that requires uh, a license to do. That's crazy. But, uh, you know, 
whatever. That's a whole other. It's the world we live in today. today. <laughs> so I could say, here, have a bite of my pepper, taste it, and then I have to throw it away because I can't, or I give it to them. But we, we can't cut off a little piece and say, try it. Correct. All right. Yep. So I think that's important. Is just get started at the market. You know, don't put too much pressure on yourself that everything has to be perfect. Um, just kind of enjoy the experience because, again, I want to stress we don't know what we don't know. But you're doing something that you want to be fun, you want to learn, um, and nobody just really has to be perfect. And while you're there, you're going to meet wonderful people. I'm sure you can get tips and pointers. Um, and I think I like what you said before is when you're thinking about what you're growing, even if you don't have a lot that day, you can kind of look and watch and see what's selling or what people do have or what they don't have. And that can help kind of build your plan for you know the summer or the rest of the summer or for starting for next year and then we have the csa that's another way to sell yes so as i mentioned before csa is great because it gives you money up front in the beginning of the season so that you can work with that to buy seeds and in a in a time when you don't have you know high cash flow because you're not selling any produce um, it does require just a little bit more commitment just because you do have to deliver, you know, a share a week per, per customer, per family that you're serving. So it does provide just a little bit more pressure if, you know, you're having like a week, you know, summer or you're having a, you know, a week where you don't have a lot of production. But what I would recommend with that is, you know, partner with those local farms and, you know, build connections with other farmers in the area and, you know, add on you know, add the crops that you're not growing. Or if you have a, a week where you don't have enough produce for everyone, you can lean in to other farmers in the area, support them and promote them to your CSA customers as well, but then also have like a more full CSA. So it's just kind of an insurance policy um, if you are if you decide to go that route. And then wholesale, we talked about a little bit too, which some of that is like maybe finding local chefs, but what is wholesale to you? Yeah, local restaurants, um, local grocers, you know, there's organic markets or small small markets that, that might be in your area that would be a good place to, to start. You know, you're going to get less money per pound, you know, at a wholesale rate. Uh, but it's, it's, again, low pressure. It's less time commitment because you're selling maybe in bulk and it allows you to specialize in certain crops. So that can certainly be, you know, a great avenue to go. Um, it's just a different model uh, and it's definitely worth considering. Now, one of the things I want to do, this, you know, people could do it or not, but I want to roll a cart to the front of my property and just say tips and just people can take what they want. If they can't leave a tip, that's fine. If they can, they'll leave some money. But I really want to just enjoy sharing, growing food and kind of put it out there. So I imagine people too, if you have excess and you have the property, you could do something like that too, you know? Definitely. I had a an honor system tomato stand because I just had so much production and I was harvesting every day and I was only going to markets on the weekends. So I wanted a place to kind of an outlet that was, you know, low hanging fruit. It was passive income because all I would do is put the tomatoes on a table and have a little jar for, you know, donations or for, you know, honor system. Mm. And it worked really well. It was super easy and, you know, Definitely recommend trying that. Well, I, I do. I, I don't want to say gardeners are the best people in the world, but I do find they're kind of up there with respect and trust and honesty and just good people, you know, having a good time. So I, I think the honor system would work for some people because I know a lot of people as I'm interacting with uh, people on YouTube and on my perk memberships, 
they do that. They have just sort of a little stand and do different things, and they have a tip jar or whatever, and it's a fun way for them to interact with their community. And they get to get known, too. It's like, hey, we can pick this up at so-and-so's house. Or, you know, they have peaches that are coming in, and I know they put them out. And, you know, and some people give them away for free. But any time that you can share your produce, I think, with the neighborhood, I think that's a wonderful thing. And part of the reason I want to think about maybe doing this myself is I grow so much food. It's a teaching channel, and it just sometimes sits on the ground. So I want to do something with it. I want to move it out. So maybe we can do something together with this, you know, down the line. And last thing, I know I'm talking long, but the thing I was thinking about, it's October. So everything you're talking about with the market, the CSA, and wholesale doing research, now is a great time for people to really look into where they could sell their stuff. They could be thinking about maybe the crop plan or what they want to grow. So, you know, we're rolling into winter soon. This is a great time for people to really plan out maybe how they would, would get started doing this. Yes, definitely. And I would recommend, you know, look, looking at books and YouTube videos and, you know, learning as much as you can in this off season and, and really just dreaming. It's, I love the winter. I love getting a new seed catalog because it's so much fun to just flip through what kind of new crops and what kind of, uh, what are other farmers growing? Just do your research, sit down with a hot cup of tea and have fun crop planning for the year. I don't know any gardener that doesn't look forward to seeing a catalog in the mail. Um, and I still get, I mean, like probably like 15 years ago, I went online and found every free catalog you could get and I still get them and it's, it's stacks, it's volume, but you're, you're right. You just flip through them and you buy seeds you don't need and you buy more seeds you don't need. And it's just a good time. Absolutely. What would, so this question is a big question. So answer it how you wish a day in the life of a market gardener. Try and give people like an idea maybe of what a day is, you know, what you're doing or even a week and throw harvesting in there. Like Mm -hmm. at this point, I want people to kind of know what they're getting into. So you can't be afraid of hard work because being a market farmer, you know, especially during the growing season is a lot of work, you know, depending on your scale. You know, I was doing it to make a living. So I was full time and, you know, you're working with the the sun, you're working when the sun rises, you know, it can be late nights, Um, but it is, I mean, the most rewarding thing is being out and working with the soil and the ecosystem and, you know, building community, you know, it's such a beautiful process of, you know, getting to know your neighbors and, you know, growing this really wholesome, nutritious product to share with people. Uh, So a day in a life, I mean, waking up and, you know, doing a farm walk, I would walk my farm every single day and just make sure, see what's going on, you know, being really observant. You know, they say the best pest and disease management is a farmer's footprint because you're out there, you're walking around and you're noticing, you know, what's, what's coming up, you know, you catch things early that way, you know, so doing the farm walk and deciding like, what are my priorities and prioritizing every day? Like, what do I need to take care of? You know, I was on my, I guess, regiment with seeding. I would seed on Wednesdays. I think it was like once a week seeding in the greenhouse, once a week seeding in the field, you know, harvest was always, you know, Mondays, I think for CSA on Tuesday and then Fridays for the weekend markets. So really like you did need to build some consistency into it, but also being really flexible because mother nature isn't, you know, strict with her timing, like things, things are ready before you planned or they, a crop doesn't work out 
and you have to rip it out and do something different. So maintaining that flexibility and being able to kind of roll with the punches is really important. Um, and accepting, you know, failure because you're going to lose crops, but then you also have wild successes with crops. So it's this really beautiful balance of, um, you know, hardship, but also celebration. And, you know, it's, it's an exciting place to, to be. And I think it's, you know, a, a really great avenue to, to explore. Well, the passion shows on your face when you talk about it. So hopefully you get back to it. I know you do stuff um, managing. So actually, let's talk about that. What are you doing now for a job? Because it's really interesting, too. So I have a great job. It's with the the library system actually has a garden an educational garden. So I am in charge of designing program and curriculum for all ages and really kind of showcasing what I have learned to the public. Because I think, you know, as we talked about last night, it's so important for people to to learn how to grow food. And I think with changing times and, you know, maybe, you know, a economy that's always changing, like it's really important to kind of have in your back pocket the skills set to to know how to grow, you know, at least a little bit of your own food to kind of offset costs. And also boost nutrition. You know, you're never going to get anything in the grocery store that's going to be as, you know, nutritious as something you just picked. And it's not going to taste as good. No, right. And there's so much truth to you pull it out of the ground, you wash it, and there's a sweetness there that you just don't find. Even if it was shipped in fresh picked two days ago, the, the sugars changed to starches. So it's a wonderful experience. And it, you do have a garden growing there. I don't want people to miss that. So you are managing an actual growing space. Absolutely. Yeah. So I manage a garden. We have raised beds with vegetable production that all the food we grow is donated. Um, we also have, you know, native perennials some fruits, uh, really just a great way to kind of find peace. You know, we, we definitely want to promote people coming and enjoying the space. Um, but also learning is, is a big aspect of that. So hard work has to be underlined a couple of times because if it's raining, you still have to go out there. If it's cold or it's not a nice day, you still have to go over there. Um, I do like the idea, though, even if you have failures, you are going to have success. So you always will have something to sell. Um, but you're going to get better and better. And you're kind of just, you know, focus it or hone it down so that you have much more successes than you do crop failures and stuff like that. Equipment. Are there basic equipment or things that are needed that you would recommend people think about. I know we were talking about, um, why is it going to haunt me now? Was it Honda? What we were talking about how to get rid of all the wasted energy in like a production line or to just make sure you're not wasting your time. So everything should have a purpose. Absolutely. So I recommend um, Ben Hartman's mm-hmm. book, uh, The Lean Farm. Um, he's great. He looks at the the Toyota factory model. Toyota, that's it. And he studies how they are so efficient with their time. And that's one thing like you never have enough of when you're farming or just in general. It's managing your time effectively. So one thing he looked at or he talked about in the book is what, what you know, techniques or what thing, what tasks are you doing that are making you money and what tasks are you doing that you're losing money on? So for example, if I'm harvesting that, 
directly equates to something I'm going to sell, which means I'm making money and that's efficient and that's good. If I'm wasting time on things like weeding, you know, that's costing me money because I'm not making money directly from weeding. So how can you implement things that will help reduce the things that aren't making you money? So for example, tarping, you know, solarization, we could get into a whole podcast on weeding if we wanted to Mm -hmm. and like techniques to like minimize weeds to promote and um, you know increase production so look at ways and techniques um, to solve those problems look at bottlenecks you know are there inefficiencies in the way that you're washing or packing or harvesting you know you investing in a tool is really important and you can always look at okay how much time is this tool going to save me and directly you know equate how much time that's going to make you by investing in that tool so it's a really good you know you have to invest money to make money and i think it's really important to constantly be looking at tools and techniques that can reduce the amount of waste that you have on your farm in time and energy and i think the key from talking with you is you've got the space to grow how can you keep not 24-7, but how can you keep growing 24-7 so that space is always being utilized and turned over so that all your energy is really going into creating a product to harvest and sell? So that kind of goes back to the succession planting. Yeah. Just always like immediately when I am ripping out a, a crop that's done, I want to seed that day if possible or the next couple days. That way you're, you know, immediately have something started and you're also, you're not letting your beds go to weed. So you're not having to deal with like a weedy mess when you go to plant it next time. So it's like constantly having seedlings or seed to just directly sow um, and, you know, consistently filling those beds. Cause that's, you know, that's money that you're going to be making at the farmer's market or that you're going to be products you're going to be putting into your CSA. How did you keep the beds full of nutrition like what did you do to keep your beds you know giving to your plants so that is a big thing to think about when you're in this kind of production system this level of intensity you're taking out a lot of nutrients by growing a lot of crops in the in the beds so you you definitely want to do your soil tests you know one or two times a year kind of look at what what you're lacking and make sure you supplement with different amendments um Compost, always compost. You know, every year I would put on an inch of compost if I could, if I could afford it or if I had it, like I would put it on every bed, uh, making sure that you're replenishing um, all the nutrients you're taking off uh, from the bed. And I would say, you know, work with someone who is a soil scientist. You know, I work with some of these companies that sell amendments and, you know, they have staff members or knowledgeable people that can look at your soil tests and tell you exactly what to get. You know, I'm not a soil scientist. Right. I don't claim to be, you know, I can tell if my plants are healthy and, you know, that all goes down to the soil, like soil health is wealth. Like that is what you need to, to invest your, your money into, to, to build a really like healthy crop. That's going to be disease free, you know, minim- minimize pests and really have the most nutritious, um, you know, qualities to it. When people ask me about a soil test, like for a home garden, which is different. Um, I usually say if you're going to a space and you've got grass and weeds and everything growing, you really don't need a soil test, but if you're going to do it, do it before you set up the garden so you know what the soil is lacking and you, you have, you know, something to start with. Once we put in our beds, you know, in our home garden, we're always throwing in different things. So sometimes the beds lack or have more of different things. When you're doing the market garden or the small scale farming, because you're sucking out so much of the nutrition, are you 
taking care of the beds all in the same way, unlike a home garden where I might be doing a little of this or a little of that? Is it kind of one treatment for how you take care of the beds? That's a great question. It You can drive yourself crazy going crop by crop, trying mm-hmm. to really perfect each bed. So because I was growing 50 plus varieties, like I wouldn't be that specific. I would maybe look at plant families, you know, or heavy feeders, for example, like tomatoes. They're heavy feeders. They need more nutrients than, than greens and other crops. Um, they might need more water or very like certain crops. I'd be a little bit more specific with, but generally speaking, I would treat my beds pretty much the same with fertility just because I just didn't have the energy or time to like really hone in. You know, if you're growing one crop or two crops, really know what that crop needs, like study it, understand it. And that's how you're going to get the best production, the best nutrient content, um, all of that. So depending on how broad or specific you are, I would say you could have a general fertility plan. It doesn't have to be very crop specific. And I I think that's important because I don't want people to kind of go crazy with worrying about everything. Um, And I think that's a good point too, with respect to like tomatoes or heavy feeders, radishes sometimes like less nitrogen or they don't need a whole lot. Did you rotate crops? Yes, um, I did. It wasn't a super strict plan just because it was a constant moving thing that, you know, if a bed was readier than or ready sooner than I thought, then I would just plug something else in without abiding by this really strict plan. But generally speaking, you know, I would look at the heavy feeders and light feeders. I wouldn't do like tomatoes on top of tomatoes if I could help or, you know, kale on top of kale. Um, but when you're on a small scale, it's not super vital that you're really strict about rotating because if you have a pest problem, you know, a hundred feet away on another bed, Mm -hmm. it's going to come to that bed no matter what, if you rotate it. So it doesn't, it makes sense on larger scale farms for sure. Um, but for smaller scale, I would just look at like how much are these plants requiring heavy nutrients. And if they are, when you rip them out, maybe follow that with something lighter, like arugula or something that doesn't need a lot of nutrients. And then plug in legumes. Legumes are nitrogen fixers. They're really good for the soil. You can follow legumes with a tomato or something like that. It's kind of basic mm-hmm. crop rotation. But again, don't drive yourself crazy if you're on a small scale. You know, I think just having good fertility, adding compost, you know, testing your soil and, you know, continuously adding amendments um, will do you good. And I think I'm glad you said that because people ask me to, do you rotate your crops? And I said the exact same thing you just said, that in a smaller space, the insects have been around for millions of years. They know how to get over even a hundred yards just about to get to where they're going, but they're definitely going to go 50 feet or a hundred feet. And compost is really king or queen. So if you can source that yourself, if you can make it, that's always wonderful. Um, I do say if you're going to purchase it somewhere, know the company, know what it's in there and just get something legitimate. But compost does go really a long way. I think we covered a lot for this podcast. Any words of advice for people just getting started or anything you might want to just kind of pass on to them to think about, you know, starting their adventure? I would say find a mentor, you know, or find a farm to work on or volunteer on, you know, once a week or whatever you can afford to do. Uh, you know, we learn best from our predecessors and I think it's really important to, you know, find someone that you trust who will invest in you and your success. And I think, again, if you're able to 
visit a few farms, see what you like, learn from other people's mistakes. I think that's kind of, it'll set you ahead of, of schedule for, for your own production. I think that's wonderful advice. I had a great time. I want to have you back because I think I have a million more questions that I could ask you. And hopefully people do take some of your advice, uh, get started. And if you want to reach me at therustedgarden at gmail.com, you can certainly send me questions with respect to the market garden. Next week or next podcast, we're going to be talking about garlic, planting onions, and things that you can just get in the ground now. You're going to have them for the spring. Thanks so much for listening and good luck in your gardens. Erica, I had a wonderful time. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And I will talk with all of you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.